Hello, and welcome to Talking About Tumors with Ryan and Ryan. Just Ryan Holstead today. I've gone ahead to do this uh, two episodes that we're going to have on head and neck cancer by myself here. The initial intent was to do all of head and neck cancer in one discussion, as this is primarily a surgical and radiation-based field. However, looking at the overall background and just the complexity and number of nuances, depending on where the tumor arises, uh, it certainly was a cumbersome discussion to do in uh, 30 minutes. So we'll break this up into two parts. Today we'll be just going over the overview of staging, as well as the standard approach to the vast majority of head and neck cancers that we'll see and to discuss the role of adjuvant therapies, namely the indications for adjuvant concurrent chemoradiation. The second part of these discussions will be looking at where definitive chemoradiation plays a role, as well as some of the more unique sites such as nasopharyngeal carcinoma and the developments in HPV-positive oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma. During that discussion, we'll also overview the metastatic state. The approach to head and neck cancer has been historically a primarily surgical field, However, due to the significant morbidity of these surgeries, which often include removing structures of the face as well as neck lymph node dissections, uh, more recently there's been attempts to de-escalate therapy or at least de-escalate the morbidity of the approach to this cancer. This has incorporated increasing amounts of radiation and less invasive surgical techniques such as robotic surgeries through a surgery known as TORS, transoral robotic surgery. Although less common than some of the other cancers we've discussed so far, head and neck squamous cell carcinoma still make up a significant proportion of cancers that we do see in oncology and represent a significant cause of morbidity and mortality worldwide. Classically, these are thought to be toxin-related, uh, most commonly things like tobacco, smoked or chewed tobacco, um, alcohol ingestion, betel nut use, which is also the, known as the erica nut and may go by various names, commonly ingested in southern Asia. Beyond toxins, other causes of cancers in the head and neck include viruses, and EBV is a known cause of nasopharyngeal cancer, which is more common outside of North America. And within the United States, the more common virus to be causing head and neck cancers is HPV, which typically leads to oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinomas, and various reasons has not shown up more frequently in the other areas that we see head and neck cancers. Although reductions in smoking and alcohol ingestion generally within the United States have led to a reduced risk of HPV-negative head and neck squamous cell carcinomas, the rising rates of HPV have led to a relatively stable rate of this disease overall. This is a disease that affects males more than females, thought to be primarily behavior-driven. However, in areas where smoking is increasing in females, we are also seeing a correlative increase in head and neck cancers in that population as well. The term head and neck squamous cell carcinoma is generally a broad overview of what are many different um, sublocations. Although the pathology of head and neck mucosal tumors are typically going to be squamous cell, our approach, our staging will vary depending on the exact anatomical site. And these sites are often subdivided based upon where their common lymph node drainage is and how accessible they are to surgical approach. The four major classifications are oral cavity, which includes the lips, the anterior tongue, the gingiva, the floor of the mouth, and the hard palate. This is very accessible surgically. As you can see, it's at the front of the mouth um, and is most commonly associated with toxin exposure. Moving backwards, the next location would be a nasopharynx, and this includes the posterior nasal cavity superior to the palate. This is most commonly EBV associated, is very sensitive to chemotherapy and radiation due to the proximity to critical nerves as well as 
the orbital orbits, surgery is much more difficult in the nasopharyngeal region. The oropharynx includes everything posterior to the oral cavity, but superior to the hypopharynx. So this includes the base of tongue, bilateral tonsils, soft palate, and the posterior of the mouth behind this area. Moving further along, you will get to the hypopharynx and larynx, um, which is also a relevant location for structures, as this is closer to critical structures such as the vocal cords, and regional toxicities of surgery can be much more significant, such as impacting ability to speak afterwards, as well as the trachea and airway management. One slightly oddball uh, in the head and neck space, much less common, but still worth mentioning, are the salivary gland tumors. I will not be going into these in too much detail. Often our treatment is going to be primarily surgical, especially for the adenoid cystic carcinomas, which can arrive in the salivary glands and also in the lacrimal glands. Even in mastaxing, due to the relative indolent growth of salivary adenoid cystic carcinomas, observation may be preferred rather than systemic therapy, given the lack of efficacy. Although if there is a large lesion within the lungs, this may be a managed uh, with a wedge resection. In general, these cancers will typically present with pain. They may present with an overt mass that's either felt within the mouth or detected on physical exam. They may present as a incidental lymph node nose in the cervical region. There may be um, There may be symptoms due to direct invasion, such as neurologic, so trigeminal neuralgia, hearing loss, loss of taste. Dysphagia can occur, especially if the tumor is closer to the base of tongue or within the hypopharynx. Sometimes an oral mass will present as a necrotic, foul-smelling lesion, and these may be treated as if they're an abscess. More often than not, when the abscess does not occur after a trial of antibiotics, this will be biopsied. It's not uncommon for patients, especially those with tonsillar lesions, to go through multiple rounds of antibiotics before biopsy is pursued. And this can be more the case in patients with HPV-positive disease who are typically younger with less toxic habits than those with HPV-negative disease. Once a biopsy is pursued and squamous cell carcinoma is confirmed, the remaining diagnostic workup includes regional evaluation. An important concept, especially in the classic head and neck squamous cell carcinomas, is the concept of field cancerization. So the idea being that if I'm smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol, that those toxins do not only hit the area that ends up developing a cancer, but could inflame and develop precancerous lesions throughout the whole head and neck region. Due to this, any patient with a diagnosed head and neck squamous cell carcinoma should have laryngoscopy, where the entire area is directly evaluated. This will most often be done by ENT, although in some centers radiation oncology will also be able to perform laryngoscopy. Additional imaging should be also regional, which would include a CT of the neck and chest. It is less common to find distant metastases. Of note, HPV-positive tumors do have a slightly increased risk of having distant metastases. However, there has not yet been any change to guidelines in differences in workup for HPV-positive or HPV-negative disease. A PET scan may be helpful in diagnosis for these patients, especially if there's suspicious lymph nodes to help guide a therapeutic approach or direct the need for further biopsies. In terms of staging, there is different staging criteria depending on the where the primary tumor is located. And I think it's kind of difficult to go over this one by one through a podcast format, so I encourage you to review these independently. But there are some important concepts to know. 
So typically the T stage is going to be based upon the size of the lesion. However, direct invasion of nearby structures will often dictate a T4 lesion. In terms of lymph adenopathy, uh, each location has its own regional lymph nodes and criteria for how many lymph nodes would dictate an N1, N2, or N3. But for the oral cavity, laryngeal carcinoma, and the HPV-negative oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma, a term called extranodal extension is relevant because by definition this is N3 disease. And what extranodal extension, or ENE, refers to is a tumor actually invading beyond the outer borders of the lymph node. And this is a poor prognosis and correlates with both local and distant recurrence. In the most recent update to the HECC staging criteria, the 8th edition, a major change was that HPV-positive tumors were staged somewhat differently. Um, This is due to a more favorable prognosis and a higher sensitivity to treatments such as chemotherapy and radiation for these patients. And in this case, even a T4N3 disease would be stage 3, which in the case of HPV-negative oropharyngeal carcinomas would be a stage 4. Essentially, the staging criteria downstages nearly everything by about one step. As already mentioned, we do not typically test for HPV positivity outside of the oropharyngeal primary, and HPV testing may be done directly by in situ hybridization for the virus itself, or through the surrogate marker P16, which is upregulated as a result of the oncogenes expressed by the virus itself. Okay, so turning to the treatment approach for these tumors... In general, for the early stage tumors, uh, surgery will be the primary treatment. And early stage would be considered stage one or stage two. And in tumors that are within the oral cavity, oral pharynx, larynx, and hypopharynx, often surgery can be the primary treatment and in many cases can be curative. During our next discussion, we'll get into some exceptions where definitive, where definitive radiation or definitive chemoradiation may be preferred for these low-stage tumors, depending on the exact location and structures that may be involved. When surgery is performed, there will be some sort of plan for approach to the neck. Whether or not this is lymph node sampling, lymph node dissection, or radiation will depend upon the primary tumor features and findings on imaging. Adjuvant radiation may be considered in lieu of a neck dissection, um, and indications for adjuvant radiation would be in tumors with close margins or clinically positive adenopathy. We as medical oncologists can get involved in the adjuvant space using concurrent chemotherapy during the time of radiation. This is not indicated in all patients who need radiation, but there is evidence to support the addition of chemotherapy, namely cisplatin, in certain high-risk settings. We've come to our current standard approach by two major studies that were published in the same issue of the New England Journal in 2004. And these two studies actually had opposite findings. It was not until a follow-up meta-analysis that an expert consensus could be reached on which patients are most likely to benefit from chemotherapy. In both studies, patients with oral cavity, oral pharynx, larynx, and hypopharyngeal tumors who've underwent a surgical resection, who are found to have certain high-risk features, were randomized either to adjuvant radiation, which was given over six weeks, or adjuvant chemoradiation, where in addition to the radiation, cisplatin was administered at 100 milligrams per meter squared every three weeks for three cycles through the course of the radiation. Although the treatments were the same between both trials, the inclusion criteria did vary. In the ERTC trial published by Cooper et al., high-risk features were defined as two or more regional lymph nodes, evidence of extracapillar extension of the nodes, or positive margins. In this study, concurrent chemoradiation did provide an improvement in overall survival. 
measured at five years at 53 versus 40%. In the RTOG trial, published by Dr. Bernier et al., high-risk features were defined as PT3, PT4, any positive nodes, also included patients with T1 or T2, with lymph nodes at the nodal stage of 2 or 3 positive. They also allowed for patients with T1 or T2, with extranodal extension, positive margins, perineural invasion, or lymphovascular invasion. So a much more broader inclusion criteria. And in the case of this study, overall survival was not shown. And at 10 years, this trial showed an overall survival of 29 versus 27%, essentially the same between chemo radiation and radiation alone. They did perform a subgroup analysis and did and found that a trend towards improvement in overall survival when looking specifically at extraneural extension in positive margins of 27 versus 20%. The follow-up joint analysis was able to show that in both studies, the trend, the greatest trend towards overall survival was shown for extraneural extension and positive margins, with the other independent findings not providing a significant improvement in overall survival. It's very possible that there are other high-risk features that we haven't yet shown in clinical trial setting. However, this is the data we have, and this is why we consider the external extension and positive margins as an indication to incorporate chemotherapy. Depending on where you work, you may see expert consensus or opinions to utilize chemotherapy in other high-risk settings. However, to my knowledge, there's not any high-quality phase 3 data to support this at this time. Now, I think it's important to mention the significant toxicity impacted by this treatments that were used here. We have not yet in any of our discussions talked about cisplatin being given at a dose of 100 milligrams per meter square. This includes patients being treated for metastatic lung cancer without radiation as part of the therapy. So this is a high dose of cisplatin, and this is administered at the same time that we are administering radiation directly to the head and neck. Toxicities from radiation alone include things such as dry mouth, dysphagia, risk of nerve injury, especially to hearing, smell, and then we, as we recall, our toxicities from cisplatin can really exacerbate by this. And the nausea and vomiting with cisplatin at this dose is not negligible. And this is one chemotherapy that even with our current approach to antiemetics, you may still have patients having outright vomiting. Fortunately, less so in the era of drugs such as palincentrum, but still not impossible. Furthermore, the ototoxicity can be exacerbated by direct radiation effects the ears, and the nephrotoxicity can be exacerbated by dehydration due to inability to eat and drink during the course of this treatment. At some centers, depending on the location of the tumor and the concern for toxicity, patients may prophylactically have a gastric feeding tube, also known as a PEG, placed into their stomach to alleviate the risk of malnutrition and dehydration during the course of therapy. Other centers may not do this prophylactically, but reserve the plan to place this feeding tube should dehydration malnutrition arise during the course of therapy. Patients being treated in this manner often need significant supportive care measures, IV hydration. Fortunately, as they're being reevaluated every day as they go through their six weeks of radiation, this can often be um, coordinated. It does benefit to have this treatment given at centers where the radiation and infusion centers at the same place should hydration be needed last minute. Also in the topic of toxicity, it's also worth mentioning that a tracheostomy may need to be prophylactically placed. This is more typically for the tumors that are further along in the hypopharynx or larynx that may increase the risk of respiratory distress due to all the secretions that can arise. Understandably, palliative care can play a large role in these patients, not just in the incurable or recurrent disease setting, but also during the treatment setting. And symptom management is truly a multi 
disciplinary approach here. Um, I find the radiation oncologists are often excellent at providing localized treatments to help prevent complications from the radiation. The every three week 100 milligram per meter squared dosing of cisplatin is very difficult to administer. And in the few patients who I've seen undergo this therapy, I've had we've had a hard time getting all three cycles in, often needing to omit the final cycle or at least dose reduce as we move along. As evidence from other disease sites have shown weekly cisplatin to be a feasible option with efficacy, clinical practice had and some centers converted to using weekly cisplatin, most commonly at 40 milligrams per meter square. Evidence to support this approach, however, was fairly sparse until quite recently. Um, in 2022, a few trials have emerged, both of these being single centers, non-inferiority design, one of which in Japan took patients with oral cavity, hypopharynx, and laryngeal stage 3 and stage 4 tumors. So that we're talking here about locally advanced patients receiving definitive chemoradiation, not adjuvant chemoradiation. And in these studies, they randomized patients one-to-one to receive either the standard 100 milligrams per meter squared every three weeks or 40 milligrams per meter squared weekly. The study had roughly about 130 patients in either arm. And this was powered to show non-inferiority with a margin of 1.32, which correlates to about a 10% difference in overall survival of five years. If you remember back to our discussion on the IDEA trial, non-inferiority trials often are dependent on the margin we select. I think it's fair to say that this is a relatively wide margin uh, looking for a difference of 10% in overall survival may not be something I'd, I may want to see less than an over, 10% overall loss of survival at five years. However, we are talking about different disease in locally advanced setting than we are in the adjuvant state. The study did meet its primary endpoint and found that the overall survival hazard ratio was 0.69. So in fact, the overall survival seemed to favor the weekly intervention had a wide conference interval of 0.37 to 1.27. And as this was not a superior design, we would not consider this to show superior of the weekly, but at least made, it, made its endpoint. It's important to look at how much treatment the patients received in this therapy, and actually the majority of those on the every three-week arm got the cisplatin desired. And in fact, on average, 280 milligrams per meter squared of the 300 milligrams per meter squared was delivered for these patients, which is quite good and probably higher than what we would typically see in clinical practice, which is good to see. They did find that the patients with the weekly dosing did have less nausea, did have less neutropenia, but looking at the absolute rates of toxicity and grade 3 toxicities, patients still had significant nausea and um, dehydration. So it was, this is by no means an easy treatment when using the weekly, but maybe slightly easier to manage. A similar small study um, at single center in the locally advanced setting was performed in India with also non-inferior design, and had similar outcomes. Thanks to these studies, we at least have some evidence to support the weekly regimen. However, you may see different approaches depending on where you work, whether providers are going to be using the every three-week classic approach or the slightly more manageable, uh, with less evidence, weekly approach. For patients who aren't candidates for cisplatin alone, now we're turning back to the adjuvant setting here, evidence for other regimens is not well-defined. We'll discuss in the locally advanced setting some other approaches being used, those including carboplatin, maybe taxane such as docetaxel, um, and some evidence to support these in the locally advanced setting. Whether or not that can be translated to the adjuvant setting is less clear, 
And in general, if a patient is not a candidate for cisplatin, given the relatively small overall survival benefit with cisplatin alone in the adjuvant setting, remember we had 13% of the most positive of the trials. And when looking at the extra nodal extension positive margins, about 7% in the RTOG trial at 10 years, this margin is likely going to be smaller when we're using less effective chemotherapy at the time of radiation. These would be good patients to enroll in trials if there are any available. And in certain high-risk settings, there may be discussion, although without any evidence to support it in the adjuvant setting, to my knowledge, um, considerations of an alternate chemotherapy regimen. All right, so putting together some bottom lines for the, this introduction to head and neck cancers today. Cancers of the head and neck encompass numerous diseases within a small area. Although many of these tumors are squamous cell and histology, the approach will vary depending on nearby anatomy, feasibility of a surgical approach, and sensitivity to chemotherapy and radiation. For early tumors in the oral cavity, in the oral pharynx, and the hypopharynx and larynx, surgery is considered to be a standard approach. In some cases, which we'll get to during our next discussion, there may be a consideration of omitting surgery and proceeding with a definitive chemotherapy and radiation combination. And this may include patients with HPV-positive oropharyngeal carcinoma or those with laryngeal cancer that is near to the vocal cords. In patients with early-stage disease who do undergo surgical resection, high-risk features such as clinical lymph node positivity or close margins may indicate a need for adjuvant radiation. Should a tumor have positive margins at the time of surgery, or extranodal extension within the lymph node, survival has been shown to be improved with the combination of cisplatin in addition to radiation therapy. More recently, interest has been to reduce the cisplatin dose to 40 milligrams per meter squared and give it weekly rather than the classic 100 milligrams per meter squared every three weeks. Salivary gland tumors are a bit of a bit unique and often are not chemotherapy or radiation sensitive, especially those that are adenoid cystic carcinomas, and these are going to be primarily managed with surgery. I hope this was a helpful first introduction to the head and neck cancers. I'll be putting together a discussion on locally advanced disease, such as those with T3 or T4 primary tumors, the approach to nasopharyngeal carcinoma, and the approach to metastatic disease. As always, we appreciate everyone who's been listening so far. Um, it's Halloween here. And I hope everyone had, who's celebrating Halloween had an enjoyable holiday and lots of candy. Bye for now. For more information, follow us on Twitter at TalkingTumors, or feel free to email us at TalkingAboutTumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. And special shout out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. And he is the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking About Tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Opinions stated on this podcast are by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures, and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of medical oncology. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.